I'm going to say some things today that are going to make you uncomfortable. I'm going to say some things today that some of you don't agree with. I'm going to say some things today that may feel hurtful to some of you. Uh, but I am trying my best as I've prepared for today's message uh, to ground what I'm saying to you in response to questions about same-sex marriage in God's Word. That's what this series is all about, an opportunity for you to text in questions and get answers straight from God's Word. So uh, my goal isn't to give you my opinion, it's not to give you my stance or my view, it's to go to God's Word and read what it says and try to apply it uh, to some divisive um, topics in our country, let's just be honest. So... Uh, let me read the questions. Uh, I got three questions that were related to this on some level I felt. And so I'm going to read these three questions and then we're going to kind of take a journey and then we're going to come back to the questions at the very end. Here's question number one. Now that marriage has been redefined by our government, would you ever marry a same-sex couple? I'm anticipating that that question was directed at me, the pastor. Okay, that's the first question. Would I ever marry a same-sex Couple. Number two, second question that was asked, when politicians in the Supreme Court pass unnatural or ungodly laws, how are Christians to respond to these laws? Now, in light of some things that have taken place in the last three months, I would again anticipate that this is a reference to a Supreme Court decision that took place in June that we'll talk about in just a moment. So we'll talk about that question. Question number three, are there different degrees of sin? For example, is being homosexual worse than calling your sibling a name? And I would say it depends on what you call your sibling. That's a joke. Just kidding. We're going to talk about that at the end as well. Let's kind of get on the same page in case for some reason you have been in hibernation for the last couple of months or you've been in a distant land vacationing and not caring about what's going on currently in our world. In June of this year... Obergefell versus Hodges was a Supreme Court case. It's actually a landmark Supreme Court case in which the court held in a five to four decision that the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples by both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourth, 14th Amendment. In November of 2014, following a lengthy series of appeals court rulings from the 4th, 7th, 9th, and 10th circuits, the state-level bans on same-sex marriage were unconstitutional. The 6th circuit ruled that it was bound by Baker versus Nelson and found them constitutional, so the state bans that were uh, deemed unconstitutional were now deemed constitutional by a case called Baker versus Nelson, which created a split between circuits and led to an almost inevitable Supreme Court appeal review. So decided on June the 26th, 2015, by a vote of 5 to 4, our Supreme Court justices overturned Baker and required that all states issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples and recognize same-sex marriages validly performed in other jurisdictions. So this, in essence, legalized same-sex marriages throughout the entire United States, its possessions, and territories. The court examined the nature of the fundamental rights guaranteed to all by the Constitution and the harm done to individuals by delaying the implementation of such rights while the democratic process plays out and the evolving understanding of discrimination and inequality that has developed greatly since the Baker case. 
Now, I don't know if you realize this. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But prior to this ruling, 36 states already recognized same-sex marriages. So we're talking about a difference in 14 states that this affected essentially. Um, And then there are other territories that had already had plans in place to recognize same-sex marriages. Now, I don't know if any of you are on any type of social media platform. But the day that this decision came out, for probably at least two solid days, all I saw were opinions about this decision. Uh, I saw opinions from people that are my friends on Facebook that agreed with the decision and celebrated it, that thought it's about time that our country gave equal rights to same-sex couples. And I also had friends on Facebook, so to speak, who uh, completely opposed the decision. Um, And I even had some friends that I would say went off the deep end as if our our world was about to fall off of the axis that it rotates on and the end was coming that day because of this decision. It was that catastrophic in their mind. I also had lots of pastor friends who felt it necessary within the week following this decision to give an official statement of their stance on marriage. Now, the logistics in their mind as to why they felt it necessary to make those statements is their right to explain. It's just mine to see and have an opinion about. But if you are friends with me or if you follow me, you will notice that I didn't make any such statements. And it's not because I don't have any opinions, let me tell you that. It's because what I noticed in our country, in our community, among my sphere of influence, is that this decision has divided our country. It has divided Christians. And I have seen people who claim to follow Jesus who have celebrated this decision, and I have seen people who claim to follow Jesus who have opposed this decision. And I have seen people who claim to follow Jesus oppose people who don't make statements that oppose this decision. And I have seen people go back and forth and back and forth justifying and claiming the inequality or the equality or the rightness of this decision and the effect that it has on our nation and our children and our grandchildren and generations to come. Now, you also have probably noticed that in our world exists a community that's been labeled LGBT, which is lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. And lots of people that belong to this community have been incredibly outspoken in the wake of this decision to the point that they make it a goal to oppose anyone that doesn't agree with this decision. We've seen already coming down the pipelines that there are going to be lawsuits, that there are ramifications for churches and for pastors based on the stances that they take in regards to this. And there are some people in our world who are simply looking to persecute people who don't agree with them. And there are also Christians, people who claim to follow Jesus, who would claim to be in that community, who um, I would say equally are looking to persecute people who have a different view from them. 
But there's also a group of people in our country, and some of you aren't going to like this because it just doesn't even feel right for you to hear this because of the way that you've been brought up or the way that you believe. But there are a group of people in our country and around the world that I believe love Jesus, who claim to follow Jesus, who attend our churches, who are involved in the community of faith, who some struggle with same-sex attraction and some are involved in homosexual relationships. And this is a group of people, I just had a conversation this past week with a man who has family members who have gone through some circumstances lately. And I asked him the question, do you believe that your family members love Jesus? Do you believe they're Christians? These would be homosexual family members that have been involved in a relationship with a member of the same sex. And based on his relationship and his seeing their involvement in church and uh, their journey of faith, he says, he says, you can't deny that God's moving in their life. He says, a man that I respect, I believe they're Christians. Now, for some of us in the room, some of us listening to this message being homosexual and being Christian feels like an oxymoron, right? And so what I want to do for the next few moments is I want to read some scriptures. And I want to give you two truths and five statements. You can say these are opinions. I claim that they're observations. Uh, hopefully there'll be statements of wisdom that will help us as we navigate through these uh, next few months and years and the future of our country if, if this is what the future looks like, that hopefully will be helpful to us. And the reason that I even considered answering these questions is because I want to be a pastor that loves people. And if there's ever homosexual individuals or couples that attend our church, my worst nightmare would be for them to feel as if they're not welcome at Synergy Church. That because of a lifestyle that they're involved in, that they aren't welcomed into our fellowship, that would break my heart. That would really upset me, and I would have some difficult conversations with some people if people were responsible for, for shunning anyone because of any lifestyle. And we'll talk about why in just a few moments. So let me give you two truths. I'm going to say some things that are pretty raw, that are rooted in Scripture. And we're going to take that, and we're going to build on it, and we're going to move forward. Everybody ready to say, let's go. Let's go. Truth number one. These are on the screen. I apologize. Homosexuality is a sin. And I say a sin because in my notes, it's a capital A. Homosexuality is a sin. And I want us to go and read some passages of Scripture that reference homosexuality, but I want to read them fairly lengthy passages so that we can read them in the context that they're given. Romans chapter number 1, beginning with verse number 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This would be idolatry. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They had become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Can I get a good amen from mom and dads in the room? They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And let me pause here for a moment and say that my heart as a pastor would be that I would never approve the practicing of sin openly. That I desire to lead people into a relationship that's healthy and mature when, with regards to their relationship with Jesus Christ. Chapter number uh, 2, verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Wow, I never realized that that all went together. I just remember hearing that homosexuals were sinners. But disobeying parents is in the same passage, along with envy and gossiping. I mean, come on. Our churches in America, let's be honest, are filled with men and women and students who are in process of becoming everything that God wants them to be. And we all have struggles. Maybe you don't, but I'll admit I have struggles. There are things in my life that I am seeking uh, to leave behind because I want to honor God more than I have in the past. And there are things that I deal with, and I would venture to say there are things that you deal with that do not honor God. And the truth is the wrath of God is being revealed against all of mankind. This is Paul writing to Christians in Rome. This is Paul saying we should not pass judgment on others when we ourselves have things that deserve judgment from God himself. And it gives a little perspective to the response that we should have when things happen in our world, in our society, in our culture, in our communities that don't agree with our beliefs and don't line up with 
the way that we have decided to live our life. It's important that we respond in a way that's godly. Let me read a second passage to you. Remember, truth number one, homosexuality is a sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Again, this is written to the church in Corinth, written by Paul, the same writer, to a different church in the city of Corinth. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Now listen to why it was happening, and we're going to gain some context here. Inside the church, there were people disputing one another that had disagreements, they were arguing, but they had a heart to attack the other. They had a heart to be right and prove that someone else was wrong. And they weren't judging themselves inside the church. They weren't settling these issues inside the church. They were going outside of the walls of the church and letting the world make decisions based on things that should have been handled in the church. Verse number six. But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Isn't it better to let someone cheat you than to go out into the world in front of unbelievers and, pu and prove how dysfunctional the body of Christ is? I mean, come on, church in Corinth. You should not be doing this. You shouldn't be taking these things out into the public. You should be handling these disputes among yourselves. Verse number eight, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Verse number nine, here's the passage we've all heard. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a long list there. I would encourage you, like I've done this week, to look at that long list and ask yourself some honest questions before we make blanket statements about people who have embraced things on the list that don't apply to our lives. Verse number 11, and this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You've been changed, you've come a long way. Why would you now turn around and look at people who have struggles, maybe similar to what you used to struggle with, but God has changed you and now cast judgment on them? And to dispute them and to take it to the courts and allow the world to make decisions instead of resolving things within the church. Truth number one, homosexuality is a sin. And let's just be honest. I don't know where you fall in relationship to people who may be homosexual. I don't know if you have same-sex attractions yourself. But the truth of the matter is, among a laundry list of other sins is homosexuality. And while some people in our world may teach that homosexuality is not a sin, 
The truth of God's word identifies that it is a sin. But let's be clear. It's one among many that are listed. Isn't it interesting that in our mind, homosexuality and Christianity feel like oxymorons, right? Have you ever thought, have you ever had the thought like you can't be a homosexual and be a Christian? Like they just oppose each other. You ever had that thought? Don't raise your hand. But if you've ever had that thought, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had the thought like you can't be a Christian and disobey your parents? Like you can't be a disobedient kid and be a Christian. Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever had the thought like you can't gossip and be a Christian? Like, like they're oxymorons. They don't get it. Why do we not have the same thoughts with regard to certain sins as we have to others? Have you ever thought about it that way? Homosexuality is a sin among others. Truth number two. God's design for marriage was one man with one woman for life. You go to Genesis 2, you read the account of Adam and Eve, and God instituted a covenant of marriage which was between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage for life. And that was God's plan. That plan has been perverted. You can read the Old Testament and see that plan perverted a lot. But we come into the New Testament and we hear Paul's instructions in Ephesians 5 that addresses husbands and wives. He's speaking to one man and one woman who are in the covenant relationship for life. All throughout Scripture you'll find a thread of marriage being between one man and one woman for life as God's plan. Now, you can see perverted marriages with polygamy in the Old Testament and people doing things that were contrary to God's plan, but God's plan was one man, one woman for life. I've never seen in Scripture a reflection of same-sex marriage in God's Word. Now, there's... There's no condemnation for people who know people who are in same-sex relationships. There's no condemnation for you if you have same-sex attractions or if you're in a same-sex relationship. It's simply a truth that I want to share with you as a pastor of this church who's been asked a question about same-sex relationships that, that number one, homosexuality is a sin among others. And number two, God's design for marriage was one man with one woman for life. And so it doesn't really matter who defines marriage or who redefines marriage. As Christians, as followers of Christ, our heart is always to go to God's word and allow that to be our standard for living. So no matter what changes come in the future, this is our starting point and this is our ending point if we claim to be followers of Jesus. But let's just be honest. What seems so black and white becomes a very difficult conversation if you actually know someone who struggles with same-sex attraction and who actually loves Jesus and wants to live a life that brings glory to him. It changes. It doesn't, it, it doesn't stay so black and white because when you begin to look at making it that black and white, you have to do it with every other sin that's listed throughout Scripture. And none of us want to do that, right? None of us want to say, if I'm a gossiper, 
I can't be a Christian. We, we don't want to do that. So let me share with you just five observations, five statements that I hope will be helpful for you, and then I'll come back around and, and try to bring some clarity to these answers specifically. Here's, here's the first statement that I want to make that just helps us who claim to be followers of Jesus navigate these waters. Number one, you cannot legislate morality. You cannot legislate morality. The law of man is not intended to keep people moral. It can't make people moral. Just because laws change doesn't mean morality changes. Can I give you some examples? Hopefully this will be helpful. Maybe it will make some of you more angry. Is it legal to get drunk? Like, is there any law that says if you're ever drunk, we're going to put you in jail for getting drunk? But do people get drunk? Is being drunk, is drunkenness a sin? Was it listed? Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine. Getting drunk is a sin. If you're intoxicated, you're in violation of God's word. Why don't we have people protesting the government? They tried to with prohibition, it didn't work out. And saying, we got to make sure we make laws that keep people from making mistakes because we know from history that just because you have a law doesn't mean that morality is going to follow it. If we made a law that said, if you get drunk, it's a sin, it doesn't mean that people are not going to get drunk anymore. Can we agree to that? Here's the second one. Is getting a divorce legal? Is it legal to get a divorce? Now, on a, a lot of grounds, is getting a divorce sin according to God's word? Outside of a few exceptions, yes. So there's no legislation that prevents the sin of divorce. Yet we don't have people campaigning, well, we got to do away with divorce. You're stuck with someone forever. You can never do it. And even if we did, it wouldn't mean that morality would follow. Right? You get that. That makes sense, right? Is... Viewing porn legal in the confines of your own home on your computer? Is it legal for you to go and look at websites that would show pornography? I don't know. There may be laws. I'm not aware of any that would say that if you're caught looking at pornography, then you go to jail. Maybe there is, and maybe I'm just ignorant. But to my knowledge, there's no law that prohibits viewing pornography. People have movie channels in their home that show pornography. People look at pornography on their computers. It's a sin. The standard that Jesus gives you, just so you know, is that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus' standard is pretty high when it comes to not even looking at a woman lustfully. So if you're looking at pornography, it's sin. Why don't we have people picketing and campaigning? Is it possible that we have somehow, because we have viewed these events differently than other sins, that we expect our government to align themselves with the morality that we believe in. And even if that were the best case scenario, I just want you to know, morality doesn't always follow the law of the land. You can't legislate morality. You can't force people 
to be moral people. There are always going to be people who break the law. There's always going to be criminals. There's always going to be people who live lives in opposition of the law. So just because the law changes doesn't mean that we have to declare the end of the world's here and everything is over now. Can't legislate morality. Number two, I'm breaking this into A and B substatements. Be careful that you don't mislead people with advice that doesn't pertain or apply to you. And I would say to people who claim to be Christians, it's incredibly important for you to examine the words that you use if you're choosing to encourage people in something that the Bible identifies as a sin, especially when it doesn't apply to you. Right? Like, like if you're the type of person that's out saying, what you're doing is okay, it's approved of, these people are just bigots, they don't know what they're talking about, you do what you want, and you're saying that about something that doesn't apply to you, I would just say you need to be careful about that. Because your words may carry weight that aren't going to affect you one day, but could affect the hearer of those words. We, as followers of Christians, have to be careful to make sure that we're not condoning something that God doesn't condone, that we're not encouraging something that God doesn't encourage, that we're not pointing people in a direction that God wouldn't point people, especially when we're not even planning to walk down that path ourselves. Here's the second substatement of this. Be careful that you don't fail to show love and compassion of Christ to the world around you. Don't approve of something that you're never going to partake in, but also don't condemn something and not show the love that Jesus would show to a group of people that may be different than you. And I've just been really disappointed with people who are in ministry, who love Jesus, who have lots of influence over people, who have created statements that hurt people and show no love to them at all. Do you see how this pendulum swings two ways unhealthily? On one side, it's like we're not showing love to people who need love. And on the other side, it's like we're approving something that shouldn't be approved. And we're allowing people to walk down the path that we're not even going to walk down ourselves. It's like we're just saying, you know, they walk out and play in the street. And then the car hits them and we're like, oh, that stinks. We've got to be careful and make sure that we're rooted and grounded in God's word and we examine the words that we use. And I kind of aim this specifically at public statements that people would make. Social media, pastors from pulpits, bloggers, newspaper articles. Your words carry weight. And we as Christians need to make sure that we are walking down a path with our words that are healthy and balanced when it comes to God's word. Here's the third statement. I just, this has always rung tr true with me. Be more concerned with making a difference than making a point. Be more concerned with making a difference than making a point. It's easy to make statements that say, I'm right, you're wrong, and leave it there. But can we all just be transparent enough to agree to just a simple fact that sometimes the statements that we make 
cut off relationships to people that will never speak to us about topics regarding the statements we've made. That we can say things, and even if we are right, or even if we feel like we're right, the way we say the things can be expressed in such a way that there will never be a conversation about that statement. It will only bring defensive remarks. It will only bring opposition. Let me say it this way. More important than being right is being present. Wouldn't you rather have a conversation with someone, even if it's a messy conversation, even if it's an ongoing conversation, even if it is a conversation that takes a lot out of you, that takes years, wouldn't you rather be present in someone's life and be able to have influence in someone's life than simply make a statement, than than feel like you're right? And I've just seen so many people that just have felt the need to be like, just want you to know where I stand, and I'm right, and you're wrong, and so this is what I oppose, and this is what I stand for, and now I've made my statement, so now leave me alone because I don't want to get messy. I don't want to have conversations. I don't want to have to deal with anyone that's different than me. I just want you to know how I feel, and then you can stay back there and stay away from me, and we'll never have to talk about it. I think that's why making statements and feeling like we're right is so attractive because it just feels easier, doesn't it? Just speak the truth. Just tell them the truth. Don't hold back. Let them know the truth. And then you never get to have a conversation. And in that moment, people have cut you off who you've opposed. It's not always about being right as much as it's about being present. And I've just committed for myself as a pastor that I would rather be present than be right. And I could care less if people make statements about me because I refuse to make a generic blanket statement that gives you my stance. And you can say that I'm a coward for not wanting to tell you my stance, but the truth is, is I pray that God gives me an opportunity to have influence and conversations with people. And God would allow me to be used to make a difference in someone's life. And I've just decided that sometimes making a point contradicts my ability to make a difference. And I'm choosing making a difference over making a point. I'm choosing being present over being right. And I hope that our church can embrace the fact that Dealing with people, loving people isn't always clean and neat, and sometimes it's just messy, but it's worth the effort, and it's worth the conversation, and it's worth getting dirty to be able to have the conversation, even if it's an ongoing conversation that doesn't end the way you want it to end the first time you have it. Number four, use confrontation from Opposing views to examine or re-examine your own life and the consistency of your views. And let me just say it this way. I wonder how many people have posted statements opposing a lifestyle that may be looking at porn, that may be cheating on taxes, 
that may be disobeying parents, that may be gossiping and slandering. Even in the church world, our marriages don't reflect God's design for marriage. So why are we up in arms because someone tried to redefine it? Shouldn't we take a step back and say, before I assault others, I should look at myself. And I should recognize and realize that within me are areas for improvement. And let me start when I feel the tension of opposing views and I feel a, an urgency to speak out against it. Let me have that same urgency to look at my own life and say, does my marriage reflect God's design from the beginning before I choose to oppose someone who we feel like doesn't? Does that make sense? Is that helpful? I've just, I've just been persuaded that it's easier for us to identify certain sins than others. And it's even easier to see sins in others than it is to see sins in ourselves. And so opportunities like this are great opportunities for us just to step back and say, am I being who I'm supposed to be? Before I make statements or have conversations, I need to get real and honest before the Lord. We can't get upset because marriage is redefined when in the church world marriage hasn't modeled God's design for marriage in years across the board. Does that make sense? Number five. And I feel like this one is potentially the most important. Let me read a scripture first. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse number one. One day as he, Jesus, was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests, these are religious leaders and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, they came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. They said, who gave you this authority? Where does your authority come from? Tell us the answer. And Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't we believe in him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, get this, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. We do not have to give an answer to every question when the answer to our question won't help our cause. We do not have to make statements in response to questions if we feel by the wisdom of God that it won't result in a helpful outcome. There were several times in Scripture where Jesus was asked a question and he refused to answer the question. And I've heard a lot of people say lately, just answer the question. Just answer the question. Just give me a statement. Just give me a statement. Just, just make me know what you believe. I need to know. And sometimes, I just believe the wise decision is not giving an answer to every question. So let's journey through these questions backwards really quickly. 
Are there different degrees of sin? For example, is being homosexual worse than calling your sibling a name? Sin is sin. Sin is sin. Sin grieves the heart of God. Sin separates us from God. And all sin can be forgiven. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just remember, obeying your parents is in the same passage as homosexuality. Why we look at them differently can be justified by people, but the truth is, is they both grieve the heart of God. And we need to be careful that we don't elevate certain sins above others and form views and opinions about people because they struggle with things that we don't struggle with. Number two, when politicians and the Supreme Court pass unnatural or ungodly laws, how are Christians supposed to respond to these laws? In love. We love God. We love others. We live in a democracy that gives you an opportunity to vote for certain things. And if you ever have an opportunity to vote, I encourage you to vote your beliefs. Vote your conscience. But when things happen that are outside of your control, some conversations that we have aren't going to change anything. They're only going to make things more difficult for us. So sometimes we should just do what my parents used to tell me, which is if you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. In some ways, the church has hurt its influence There are churches in America that will never be able to reach people who struggle with sins that aren't struggled with inside their churches. And to me, that is a tragedy. And if there are ever same-sex attractions that walk through the doors of this church or homosexual couples that walk through the doors of this church, my plan is to love them like I love you. And I pray that God would do a work in their life just like I pray he does a work in my life. And that we all can journey together towards maturity in Christ. And the last question, which some of you aren't going to like. Now that marriage has been redefined by our government, would you ever marry a same-sex couple? And I would just say that that's a conversation I'll have with a same-sex couple that asked me to marry them rather than a statement that I'll give you. And it's a conversation that I would love to have. It's a conversation that I pray would be helpful for everyone involved. There is understanding that I need to gain with regards to this topic. And there are truths that I would love to share with regards to this topic. But in a culture we live in, when people are looking for opportunities to sue and to persecute and to bring legal action against people, how would it benefit me to make a statement publicly that could be used against me in the future? Some of you don't like that. Be bold. Make a statement. I'd rather have a conversation. I'd rather have a conversation. We as Christians need to be careful how we speak to and about sin 
that we may or may not deal with, and we need to be careful to love people with the compassion of Jesus. We need to make sure that we're not condoning something that Jesus doesn't condone, that we're not encouraging something that Jesus doesn't encourage, but that we're not persecuting someone for something that we ourselves could be persecuted for something else. That love should be the thread by which we navigate the world that we live in. God loves all people, and so should we. And I would rather have conversations with people that may be messy and may be difficult than make statements that would eliminate an opportunity for a conversation. So as your pastor, please know that I love God's Word, and God's Word is my standard for living. But I love people equally. And I pray that God gives me opportunities to have conversations with people. And so I choose not to make statements in hopes that I'll be able to have conversations. I encourage you to wrestle with this issue for yourself and make sure that you're settled on a course that would lead people closer to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. In this room are represented many different struggles that each of us may have with various different sins. And my prayer, Lord God, is that you would help us live lives free of sin. We may not be perfect, Lord, but we should strive to be. We may not walk fully in your ways all of the time, but we should sure try to. And my heart, Lord, is to lead people into a relationship that's growing with Jesus Christ. May I never disqualify myself from having conversations of influence in the lives of people because I feel a need to be right or to make points. And may we, as your church, as your people, Love one another the way you loved us. May we see sin for sin, and may we not have a bias in regards to different sins. And may you give us a compassion of love for others. I pray that you bless our church. I pray you bless our community. And Lord, I pray that you bless our country, that you would lead us into a place of blessing that we would stand before you as a godly nation full of godly men, women, and students and children that love you. And may we seek to live lives that bring glory to your son, Jesus. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.